0: Today, coming up, we have Liam Lilly from Transition Towns, Sea Change and the Food Co-op. He's a busy lad, and uh, yeah, he's also from Behind the Lines. Um, he's going to be talking about Transition Towns and the, uh, the event that they have coming up on Monday. But just to give us a bit of an idea about Transition Towns and what sort of things can happen if a Transition Town initiative is supported by the local community, let's have a listen to its founder, Rob Hopkins.
1: I live in a town where every single person, myself included, is a developer. That's an important and remarkable thing in itself. But today I want to tell you the story of what happened when we all took on an abandoned factory and learned to embrace a process rather than an outcome, when comfort zones became a thing of the past. If you're somebody who likes stories with a happy ending, this will take you out of your comfort zone too. In early September 2014, people living in and around Totnes received this graphic, and the following announcement. On the 1 p.m. on Thursday the 25th of September at the gates of the former Dairy Crest site, an announcement will be made regarding the site's future. We believe this announcement will become part of Totnes' community history. A statement will be read out and given to everyone attending and a historic ceremony will take place. The Dairy Crest site had stood at the heart of the economy of this town for decades. At its peak, it bought in milk from 1,300 local farms and made a ton of clotted cream a day. That's a lot of clotted cream. It closed in 2007 and 165 people lost their jobs. And almost immediately, people in this community started rallying around the idea of the community determining the site's future. On the morning of September the 25th, people received either in its entirety or in blocks of 140 characters, thank you, Twitter, the following passage from a well-known children's book, and see if you can tell me where this comes from. Somewhere in the distance, a church clock began striking 10. Very slowly, with a loud creaking of rusty hinges, the great iron gates of the factory began to swing open. The crowd became suddenly silent. The children stopped jumping about. All eyes were fixed upon the gates. Charlie in the Chocolate Factory, very good. So on the day, about 300 people turned up on a Thursday morning. And here's how our uh, our town crier got what happened next underway. Oh
0: yay! Oh yay! For seven years, the gate of this site,
1: for many years at the
0: heart of our
1: community, has been locked.
0: Today, we are going to open these gates.
1: And so we did and 300 people filed onto the site, a statement was read out detailing the site's future, everyone was given a copy of it in a golden envelope, uh, a cake big, so big it took three people to lift was shared out, and speeches and, and the photographs were taken. Today, a year later, talking about that day still gives me goosebumps. The air was rich with possibility in a way that in our daily lives it so rarely is. Much of my work over the last 20 years has been about creating places of possibility, openings where another world, another future feels possible. While that day remains one of the most remarkable, what has followed since has contained many such moments, not all of them so delightful, but all of them part of vibrant and dynamic process. As wonderful as Roald Dahl's story is, real life isn't like Charlie in the Chocolate Factory. I'd love to be able to tell you the ending of the Atmos Totnes story, but it doesn't have one. Each step belongs to our 8,500 developers, and each step emerges from the previous ones in ways that you or I can't imagine or predict. Each step creates what comes next. It's a process without end. In many ways, the story of Atmos Totnes is just the next chapter in an ongoing story of a town reclaiming its future, its hope. Imagine, for example, we reach a stage where our young people have access to good, beautiful homes, are empowered to start new livelihoods on land owned by the community, where local organisations are able to expand what they do to the wider community as part of a vibrant network of social innovators. It would be a brave person who would try to predict what might come from that, or on the journey towards that. But our culture hates never-ending stories. They make us acutely uncomfortable. But real change requires stepping out of what feels comfortable if we're really to achieve what we need to achieve. The agreement that we announced that day was groundbreaking. It looked at the site in three parts. The orange part, McCarthy and Stone, a builder of retirement property, would be be buying. The purple part, including the historic Brunel building, we, Totnes Community Development Society, the organisation we set up to do that, would be buying for one Totnes Pound, our local currency. The blue part of the site, the value would be determined by what we got planning permission for on there, and then we had an option to buy it at that point. The really exciting bit is the route to planning. Using something called a community right to build order, given to communities in the 2012 Localism Act, it says that if you can show you've engaged lots of people, you produce produced a master plan, you have a referendum. If more than 50% of the people who come out to vote, vote yes, that's full planning permission. A new route to planning for community-led development. So what we're doing here covers the whole site. So McCarthy and Stone will only get permission to build what they want to build if 50% of the community will come out and vote in favour of it. Dairy Crest will only get value back for their site if 50% of the people who come out and vote will vote for it. I hope by now you're starting to get a sense of the real radical potential of this. The community stepped up to this challenge because people should step up for each other when they sense that change is possible. All of us at the heart of this process, all recognise that what we want to see happen on this site doesn't matter. It's neither here nor there. Our role is to support this community to do something remarkable, to meet its needs in a way that the conventional, developer-led model usually fails to do. Development is usually an extractive industry designed to meet the needs of economic growth and distant investors, rather than local people and their local economies. Stepping up to do something different is challenging, but that makes it all the more important that we do it. I'm telling you this story about eight months before that referendum is due to take place. I can't, therefore, tell you whether the community voted for this or not. But it shouldn't matter at what point in this process I tell you this story, because what matters is the process. That our 8,500 developers jumped in feet first and trusted the collective to deliver what it needs. Shortly after that event at the gates, one of my colleagues suggested that I needed to, quote, fall in love with the process to give up any attachment I might have to what should happen on that site. turned out to be the best advice anyone gave me on this project, because what I want is just one eight-and-a-half thousandth of a wider process. What's so much more important is that we enable everybody to fall in love with this process too. We know this town is feisty, remarkable, creative. It's a spirit that's come through today already. And that spirit underpinned the campaign that got us to this stage in the first place. From the day the factory closed, we campaigned, we held public meetings. It built up in 2012 to a really focused campaign where we unveiled high-profile patrons. What we noticed was that people stopped calling it the Dairy Crest site. They started calling it the Atmos site. It became a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. And that was one of the things that brought Dairy Crest to the table. In August 2014, we signed a contract about that thick. And that enabled the project to start moving forward. We opened the old site office up as the Atmos Totnes Hub. There's a consultation working with Encounters Arts, brilliant community engagement consultation organization. We, we designed it around the idea of the past, the present and the future of the site. So the first part people came into was the past. People came in to tell their stories about the past of the site. On the second day we were open, this gentleman came in. He said, if you add up myself, my father, my immediate family, my wife, her immediate family, together we worked on that site for 150 years. He said, I lost my job in July 2007. I was off work with depression for the next six years. He said, this is the first time I've been back here since. It took me a lot to come here today. There were a lot of tears in that room over the next eight weeks. It became a kind of self-organized Dairy Crest factory museum. This is a photograph that he brought in of his own father working there in the 1950s. The present section of of, of the hub brought people up to speed with the agreement that we had signed with Dairy Crest. The future part invited people to dream. It said, here's a blank slate. Anything could happen here. Some people spent hours working on drawings, writing everything they thought ought to happen on that site. One person said to me, I've just realized this is the first time in my life I've ever really been consulted about anything. Just consider the implications of that for a moment. Another person said, you can't help but participate. Imagine if more areas of our civic life were like that. During the time that hub was open, about 1,300 people came through the doors, and another 800 were engaged at outreach events across the town, and most of them left some kind of input. You might imagine that making sense of all of that input, this random sort of wild eclectic soup of ideas, would have been really difficult. But a strong message came through very clearly. People wanted and needed housing that was actually affordable, beautiful, energy efficient, that they could help build. They wanted small scale enterprises, manufacturers, processors working collaboratively. They wanted a mixed use development powered by renewable energy with edible and beautiful landscaping. They wanted good transport links to the rest of the community, a place for visitors to stay, somewhere that the town could be proud of. We also formed what we called our community design team, 20 people who had been through the hub, they gave up two weekends. We walked the site, we got to know it. We walked in Totnes and they got a sense of, well, why does this place work? Why do we love this place? What are the patterns that underpin this place, that mean we all love it so much? We tried to blur that edge between professional designer and everybody else. They worked in groups, they worked up an an initial master plan, the degree of consensus was phenomenal. So then we had our set of design principles, we had the initial master plan. We then held held another round of consultation, people came in, signed that off, that's been the foundation on which we've moved forward ever since. At the same time, while the community were filling the hub with its ideas, our professional design team got to work filling the, drilling holes on site, looking for groundwater and contamination, looking for lizards and bats, uh, trying to make sense of the legacy of buildings we had inherited. While Charlie had inherited a chocolate factory, all chocolate rivers and waterfalls, we had inherited eight acres of derelict and potentially dangerous sheds, and we needed the right people to help us make sense of them. At the same time, our architects got to work trying to turn the community's dreams into reality to give form to what people had so clearly said they needed. So this is what a community of developers looks like. First of all, we have our uh, our directors of Totnes Community Development Society. We're all volunteers. Then we have our professional design team who bring the expertise that we need. Then we have our community design team, many of whom are also Atmos ambassadors. They've agreed to have 100 conversations with people in their part of town about Atmos. These are all the people who've been to our consultations, people we've talked to in the street, the people who hopefully come next year will come out and vote and make this thing a reality. What people have designed is really extraordinary. We're looking at a development of about 65 truly affordable houses built using a community build process held in a community land trust. The Brunel building being reopened as a public space for music and events and so on a new hotel, a school for food entrepreneurs, a brewery, an energy centre, a youth hub, a health and wellbeing centre, all with edible landscaping powered with renewable energy designed to minimise the need for, for, for public transport. For, no, for, for car transport, that's what I meant to say. Being part of this has been a phenomenal process. All of us at the heart of this process have had to, uh, have had to learn that it's okay to feel unnerved, often acutely so. The French painter Jean de Buffet once said, art's best moments are when it forgets what it's called. For me, our best moments as changemakers, as activists, as campaigners, are when we forget to do what's expected of us, when we step out of the comfort zones of the language, the culture, the fonts, the appearance that define that, and we step into something else. Atmos has been a real example of that for me. Our professional design team tell us one of the things they love about working on this project is that we give them permission, we push them out of their comfort zones and really invite them to be brilliant in a way that, on many other jobs, they're not. There's an old saying, you have to go out on a limb because that's where the fruits are. I think all of us at the heart of this process have also experienced falling out of the tree. And you'll be amazed at what you can learn and what you find lying face down in the grass. This is an activity from the hub, when the hub was open, called Anyone Who. The idea was written on each of these hearts is a key moment in the evolution of the Atmos story. People are given a strand of wool and invited to tie it round the ones that they were part of, that they remember. Over time, you build up a sense of of how everybody's stories start to converge. For me, one of the key indicators of the success of this process is the thought that although I'm up here giving this presentation, any of you who live in and around Totnes could be up here doing this. You would tell of a different pathway through your own strand of wool, if you like. You would note different highlights, but you would tell a story of Atmos Totnes because you were here too. When I said this was a never-ending story, I meant it, because it's not just about what happens on the Dairy Crest site, that's just the first chapter. The real story we're telling here is why it matters that communities own assets and what a game-changer that is. This is a model of development where who owns it, how it's done, who does it, what it's built from, all really matter. When communities are able to design, own, and develop their own assets, they're so much more in control of their destiny than they were before. It's a never ending story because it changes the context of where people live and how they work. Future chapters will include energy generation owned by the community, investment managed in a different way, the capacity to rethink our food system, and the opportunity to, to, to create employment, training, housing, in such a way that we no longer see the annual exodus of 18-year-olds in this town four weeks after they get the A-level results, because once again this town has been unable to provide the housing and the employment opportunities that could have enabled them to stay. During the campaign, I did this series of things called Atmos Voices. We went out and talked to shopkeepers, publicans, taxi drivers, people all across the town and said, why does this matter? Why does this site matter? What would you like to see happen on this site? The only one I never used was with a retired local politician who said to me, well, it's all very well, but you know, this town, it's all talk, it comes up with all these great ideas, and they just never happen. I hope that now, years later, with an agreement this thick signed, hundreds of thousands of pounds of investment raised, design work happening, a referendum set to happen, that he will have changed his mind, and that many people, will have changed their sense of what's possible for this place, where we could go, what we could create, that we no longer need to be passive, but we can actually uh, take command of these things ourselves. It's a story that, whether it ends today, or in three generations' time, is only possible because we've given up on the need to know the last chapter. And actually, you can keep your chocolate rivers and waterfalls, your edible marshmallow pillows, your everlasting gobstoppers. Because every stage of this process, the process of healing this decrepit factory, which for so many years meant so very, very much to so many people, has been remarkable. Just speaking for myself, I've met so many people, learned so much. And as my colleague suggested, I have fallen in love with this process. Perhaps you're a developer too, you just hadn't realized it yet. Perhaps everyone where you live is a developer too. Turn the first page, your story starts here. Thank you very much.
0: And you're on community radio 2XX 98.3 FM. So there you go. That's Rob Hopkins telling the story of how a community got together and basically inhabited a uh, an old building, an old derelict building in their in their town. So Liam Mulley, good day. Welcome to the show. How are you? Hey Scotty Foster, I'm well, thanks, mate. Good, good, good. Uh, so yeah, yeah, you're here on behalf of Transition Towns. Um, yeah, what, what's
2: Transition Towns? The Transition Towns was started by the bloke we were just listening to, Rob Hopkins, in uh, Totnes in England, and it's just a concept, an idea, and an action, I suppose, trying to get communities within towns to come together to of form a vision first of what they want their town to be and then go ahead and yeah follow that action plan to make their town more sustainable less reliant on fossil fuels and uh uh, oil and gas uh, and then come together to try and improve uh the well-being of everyone in the town and also the equality in the town so it's a big project and there's lots of aspects to it but um yeah, I suppose the first thing is just getting the community together to realise that they can, you know, pull these types of things off. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, that sounds like a pretty good idea. Where, where hmm. did it come from? Where, where's Transition Town sort of emerged out of? Uh, I'm not sure exactly. I suppose Rob and a few people in England started it up, I suppose, out of just a, a feeling of... You know, helplessness, I suppose, Uh, just relying on government and business or big business, I should say, uh, to, you know, do what is right and that not always coming to fruition. And then just kind of taking, you know, the ball in their own hands and running with it and saying, you know, if people aren't going to do, the people who are supposed to do this for us aren't going to do it, we're going to do it ourselves. Uh, And then within Canberra itself, it was started up about three or four years ago by, taken on strongly by Karen Jessen uh who works at communities at work down in tugernong hello karen uh and then both ryan and larry from the conservation council and the canberra environment center and also jody pipcorn from sea change kind of formed a little secretariat to get everything going we've had a few events over the last few years um and canberra is really great actually there's lots and lots going on uh, but sometimes i suppose Uh, those little organisations and groups can just work in a a bit of a silo and, you know, focus on their own thing. Uh, And there's lots of room there for collaboration and projects that we can all, you know, come together to make Canberra a better city. Yeah, nice one. So,
0: it's a transition. Yeah, I mean, transitioning from what to
2: what, you know, in a nutshell. That's a good question. And it's hard to focus on... The negatives all the time, I'm not saying, and we're not saying, and Transition Towns isn't saying that uh, the city that we have at the moment is is in any way bad or, you know, that we don't want to be a part of it. But it's just something that we can always make better, I suppose. So, uh, we do rely heavily on fossil fuels. Uh, we do have inequality still. Uh, we do have demographics within our society and within our city that have... Uh, some demographics have a lot stronger voices than others. Uh, so we want to transition to a carbon-neutral town, first and foremost. Uh, a town that is, or a city that is uh, has greater equality, uh, takes better, better care of the environment, uh, better care of each other, builds social capital, has better community. Um, yeah, a whole list of things. Yeah,
0: nice one, nice one. And at, around the world, I mean... It started in the in the UK or Ireland or something like that, I believe. And how 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 was it spread?
2: Uh, I suppose just through the success of the original towns in England, uh, a lot of people. It's, it's kind of like a tourist mecca for sustainability heads around the world now. Totnes and other little towns <laughs> in England. Um, you know, they go over there and they can get expi- uh, inspired. But there's also, yeah. Uh, organization formed called transition towns they put books out and they have a, a website and they do blogs and talks and you know so they spread the word themselves but people also yeah just come across it and, and get inspired yeah
0: right so it's like a network across the world who are all talking to each other about how they've done it the best way
2: yeah exactly and like a lot of these things that work well uh most of them have been done before you know what i mean so (laughs) we don't need to reinvent the wheel in any way it's just nice to have that that information sharing available and we can just stand on the shoulders of others um who have done great things and kind of copy that and adapt it to our particular settings uh and then yeah just run with it and take it further Mm. and then help spread the word as well to other people who are looking to take on similar projects
0: yeah, cool. So, I guess one of the tools that Transition's been using, they, they call envisioning.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, so, what does what envisioning uh, mean? I suppose, to put it bluntly, as if, if you don't know where you're going or you don't have an idea of where you're going or where you want to go, you'll, just, you'll kind of end up somewhere else. So, yeah, in order to end up where we want to be to have a better future for ourselves and the planet and for our, our children, uh, we... You know, need to sit down and kind of envision or imagine, uh, and just think about what we actually, where we want to be, uh, and how we want to get there. Um, and it's a really powerful uh, method to just you know lay things out, and then hopefully uh, build a shared vision around those thoughts and those ideas, uh, and give us something, give you know, some kind of roadmaps to build towards a better future. Yeah, nice one. So um, I guess you're talking about the,
0: the stories that we tell ourselves, really. How important in society are the stories that we sort of tell ourselves every day of what we are and how we should act?
2: Well, the kind of prices, I suppose, you know, looking at a at it from a different way, I suppose on a personal level, um, from just personal mentality, if, you know, people who are kind of endlessly negative, they tend to be endlessly negative i suppose if they constantly tell themselves that things are bad or the future is going to be bad uh they tend to you know turn out that way or they have a depressed or a negative sense uh, or outlook on the world um but yeah people who are more eternally positive i i suppose um but, you know they, they have studies show they have better luck um they have more friendships and they're just generally happier so just taking that out to a societal sense a lot of Outlooks on the future are very bleak and there's very good reasons behind that but I don't believe that that is the only way that the future can turn out and if we do, you know, put a positive outlook on things and focus on what we have that is going well already and what we can do well in the future uh, we're more likely to achieve those things in the future instead of just focusing on what is uh, wrong and, yeah, trying to focus on what is right. Yeah, right. So do you reckon we're susceptible to being able to change
0: our, our story that we tell ourselves? Like I guess the, the current story that's always repeated to us is that, you know, we need economic growth to survive on the face of the planet and, you know, there's, there's all these things. Democracy consists of making a choice every three or four years and yeah. there's lots of things that we're always told. Um, how, how can we get
2: a change in, in people's story? I suppose on that the first point of that question, when you do face up to these problems or you know big, wicked problems uh, or issues that we have uh, in the world, such as you know climate change and inequality and a bunch of others, we feel very helpless. I suppose just sitting there looking at these enormous worldwide problems as an individual and thinking, you know, how on earth am I as a as a singular entity just going to you know cha- or even help to change this, let alone you know, bring about real change. But when we do come together as groups of people kind of working on intrinsic values, uh, that makes it quite a lot more powerful when we get inspired and, you know, we kind of feed off each, o- each other's energies. Uh, and again, studies show that when people who have similar intrinsic values work together on, you know, intrinsic kind of projects, uh, the outcomes are generally a lot better than extrinsic values. So, um, and the second part of your question, there, I suppose the the paradigm that we are almost fed uh, about economic growth and uh, just the reliance on fossil fuels, and what was the other one you brought up? Oh, oh I democracy. Up sort of democracy. Basically. Yeah. Um, again, I think just taking the power back to the communities on these fronts and put, trying to put people and the earth and the planet first uh, instead of uh, you know, big business and government, and I think part of the reason that that is not happening is that we don't have a shared communal vision uh, on these things. A lot of people have them individually, but you know, as a town or a city, uh, Canberra, for example, we have a vision to become carbon neutral, which is great uh, and well done to the EPD and the ACT government on that. But there's also, yeah, they are constantly uh, chasing economic growth. And part of that leads to uh, carbon emissions, and you know, kind of gentrification, and all these things within the city, which I think, if you know, the city as a whole would not necessarily want.
0: Yeah, right. So, in the in the past, when when other towns have done this sort of event, what what's what's uh, what's happened out of that? So the the envisioning kind of event, or yeah, the, yeah, yeah, because I, I believe you've got
2: one of these coming up, don't you? Yeah, so Monday night actually a, is our next Transition Towns event um, at Turner at the Renewable Hub uh, in Turner, six thirty. There's also another one in Tugernal on the nineteenth. Um, and what we're really trying to do is get a a wider spectrum of society, I suppose, um, and not just the people that would typically, you know, have the privilege and the luxury to rock up to these events and the you know the spare time and the and the free will to do that um so yeah we're definitely reaching out to different kind of underrepresented groups within our society to give us a true vision of canberra and you know some alternative ideas uh, and perspectives on things uh, to try and just kind of amalgamate all of those so the outcomes that have happened and what we're hoping for i suppose first of all is just The first thing we want to get is uh, focus on the community assets. Um, So just try and realise what we are actually doing really well and what is happening in Canberra. And there's a lot happening in Canberra, which is great. Well, Transition's Uh, already done a whole heap of work on that, haven't they? Yeah. If you look on the
0: Canberra Transition Town's little page on on the international network, there's this massive, great big spidery jellyfish sort of thing with about... 150 different organisations just in Canberra.
2: Yeah, that's right. We have a, a coggle map of that, actually, um, which just showcases all the great things that local organisations are doing. Uh, and just, yeah, the sheer number of them is quite impressive. So, yeah, that's going to be... Pardon do mean? Yeah, quite uh, a solid aspect of the night is just focusing on what we already have and just, like I said before, not trying to... Reinvent the wheel and s- replicate these groups, um, but then the second part of the night will be focused on ideas, and then the final part on the implementation of ideas. So I suppose those two segments of the night will highlight, you know, what people really want that they that we don't already have, and what their visions for the future are, and then any possible gaps uh, within Canberra or Canberra's organisations that we could fill up, uh, and then projects that we that existing organisations uh, can work on. Yeah, nice one, nice one. So what's, what's the importance of trying to get a wide
0: wide sort of um, demographic, I guess, into this sort of stage of a of a
2: transition process? Well, I think a lot of people from, you know, these environment and community organisations, one of the problems or one of the mistakes they make quite often is when they try to convince people or... Of their ideas or that their ideas are good, they're often trying to, like, it's like they're looking at themselves in a mirror and trying to convince themselves that their ideas are good. Um, and it doesn't work with people, <laughs> obviously, who share, um, who, have, who have different ideas or have different values. So we all have values, it's just we have values about different things. So if we can talk about them in different ways to communicate them to everyone, uh, I think that would be much more powerful instead of just trying to convince. Other people with the arguments that convince ourselves because those arguments you know if they're not working on those other people, we need to try and rephrase that argument to talk you know to try and speak to their values instead of just our values mm. and do you reckon that, that do you reckon it's a, it's a
0: real and feasible thing to try and find common ground across the, the whole of society? Yeah. are there things we're all going to agree on more or less
2: I think on a broader i think yeah just to take it up a level i suppose um you know, in more of a macro sense. I think there are things there that everyone can agree on. And then, yeah, getting into a deeper kind of political philosophy uh, standpoint on it, there are obviously still problems with democracy and even uh, kind of majority rule where underrepresented groups don't, you know, necessarily get their voice heard. But I think, yeah, we all want a sustainable planet. Um, and this is, oh, I'm not talking about big business and, you know, it's actually the community uh, of Canberra I think we, yeah, we all want, a, obviously, a better Canberra i um, not saying that it's bad at the moment but if it could be better, I think everyone would want that uh, we all want a sustainable Canberra and a sustainable world we want a better uh, city and world for our children uh, we want species to go on um, and survive um, and not become extinct Uh, We want our natural environment to remain intact Uh, So yeah, I definitely think there is a lot of common ground Uh, And also on the economic front You know, we all want opportunity Uh, On an economic front uh, We want money and resources to stay within Canberra Instead of going straight out the door to multinationals Um, So yeah, there's definitely some common ground there It's just ways to figure out how to pull those out of people And how to go about, you know chasing these goals yeah right so um what sort of barriers
0: do you see getting in the way of this sort of thing sort of becoming known throughout the community and and becoming a a sort of just a, a thing that people think about really
2: yeah it is trying to reach out to more a wider audience is quite hard i think the biggest barrier is time um even if a lot of people Uh, are interested in it, they might not necessarily have time to come along to the event or be involved afterwards in any way, even though they might really want to. Uh, So, yeah, I think the creation of time is very important, uh, of leisure time. We can't create more time, obviously, but more leisure time for ourselves, uh, more time (laughs) off of work, uh, and more, less pressure, I suppose, to, you know, live up to expectations um, that we might necessarily hold of ourselves, but just think that other people might do, uh, and also just societal expectations uh, of just, yeah, consumerism and and various things like that. So I think that's a huge thing. Uh, if we could, you know, start work on a, a shorter working week, for example, it would give us a lot more time with our families, a lot more time to build social capital and become involved in community events. Uh, and then, yeah, participation in in democracy itself. Uh, I think time is a really just a real barrier at the moment to forming true participatory democracies.
0: Hmm, hmm. Now, this sort of event traditionally sort of gets a a big vision of what people might want the place to look like in in 20 years or something and then sort of works backwards from there, which is a bit different from how you might think about it. What's the value of of planning
2: backwards? Well, I think, yeah, you, you know what your end goal is. I suppose, um, and you know, we've just chosen an arbitrary date at 2050, kind of in line with the, the ACT government's plan for a carbon neutral Canberra uh, at the latest, and yeah, to work back from that, we can kind of um, yeah build a roadmap, I suppose, and see the steps that we need to take and draw out action plans, and see how far we've uh, progressed already along those lines, and, and how much work we have left to do, and just creating not just a vision, but Yeah, like tangible steps for us to achieve uh, what we want to achieve.
0: Yeah, right. So who who usually makes this sort of decision about what what we want to happen in the society and and actually getting on and doing it, you know?
2: Well, (laughs) that's a good point. I think people kind of, yeah, just expect that it is someone else doing it and just feel a bit forlorn that they don't have the power to do such things. But have you heard... Uh, in the interview with Rob Hopkins just before uh, you know we can just take that power I suppose and start doing things as a community and then realize that hey we can actually (laughs) do this ourselves you know like people just kind of expect that they're and it's good and bad sometimes like people just expect um, the government are going to do things and when they announce that they're going to do something such as the carbon neutral plan uh, people can often sit back and say oh well that's taken care of I don't need to do anything myself now Um, so yeah, that's obviously a good thing that they're announcing that, but it's bad in a sense that people just become, um, what's the word I'm looking for, Scotty? Just a bit. Um, (laughs) Penoggy (laughs) wowsy, Or maybe not, no. Um, Yeah, just feel, yeah, kind of like Homer Simpson, can't someone else do it, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, right. So I guess, um... It's funny because that,
0: those, those people who who are doing that job seem to have a, a real lack of imagination at the moment. I mean, they can't even bloody... Can't even get the housing blocks in a new development pointing the right way to save a whole heap of energy. I mean, basic, simple, imaginary, free things. Yeah. Uh, do you reckon we'll get more imagination out of people who work on the ground and actually do stuff?
2: Yeah, I suppose the way it's, it's structured at the moment... Um, yeah, people within those places are time poor themselves and there's there's budgets and restrictions and all those things. Um, and also, yeah, they're kind of... The people who set the framework for society at the moment, um, it, it just seems, especially on a national level, they have very little ambition to, you know, actually address and solve these problems that are kind of dire to our future. Um, so, again, I don't know that they're will they definitely capable of doing that, whether they will and whether that system will change, I am, I am highly doubtful. So I think uh, participation uh, in the political process, like real participation, I mean, not just going out and voting or campaigning for the, the pre-existing system um, and trying to form true, you know, people-powered democracy is one of the key elements to all of this. Yeah, nice, nice. Um, so... Yeah, what, what are we
0: going to do with the, the results of this? You know, What, what do you reckon the, the next steps might be? You...
2: Well, there's a few options. We're going to draw up a narrative, uh, first of all. Um, I think it's quite a powerful tool uh, for people to, yeah, like we were talking about before, read the story and just kind of put themselves in that future and envision where Canberra might be and where they might be within that society. I think it's quite powerful uh, and quite exciting as well for people to, and just a way for them to get involved again after the event. Uh, and then from there, uh, maybe possibly draw up a, a kind of you know, manifesto, as we were talking about before, things that we can all agree on that we want a better future for Canberra for and just get people signing up to that and then taking it to people. And then, again, just some collaborative ideas uh, with organisations through Canberra. And also, just you don't have to be involved in an organisation either, just you know, um, individuals uh, or groups of individuals from communities. Uh, realizing, you know, what's the next step on that roadmap that we can do towards, you know, that better future and just start working on that.
0: Yeah, nice one, nice one. Um, is there anything else
2: you want to add? Uh, come along, please. <laughs> like, I think we we definitely want a, a wider spectrum of, of society to come along um, because I suppose one of the problems that we often face is yeah just putting our own perspectives on things um, and even sometimes when two groups of people or organizations who are both trying to do good things uh, from their perspective sometimes that clashes so um, yeah to get them together in in the same room before or you know before anyone goes too far or before um, you know projects get started I suppose and try and Uh, Just work out how we can work together on these things. One of the stories, I suppose, around this is from North America, actually, where a group of uh, vegan activists went and protested a a traditional deer hunt um, of some uh, of the North American tribes, and I think it was Northeast USA somewhere. Uh, And, you know, from a silo point of view, the the vegan group were doing what they thought was the right thing um, by protesting the killing of animals. But uh, I think, you know, kind of protesting a traditional way of life, which has been sustainable for hundreds of thousands of years, um, is not the right way to go about, uh, you know, real change, I suppose. And taking away that source of sustenance from, uh, you know, First Nations people uh, it just kind of feeds them back into the system that makes uh, the world worse, even if, if from a vegan's point of view, you know, because they have to, if they can't go out and hunt deer uh, to sustain themselves, they have to come. And because traditionally, uh, First Nations people have less access to education and health and all those things, so they have less uh, access to, you know, well-paying jobs. And then, yeah, through lower wages, they're forced to buy Worst food etc which is you know 10 times well, you know however many animals get killed in you know uh, industrial agriculture so in a way you know what i mean they just didn't yet think ahead enough to see that their protest that they thought was doing a good thing could actually be even more harmful to their own cause let alone extremely harmful to the the first nations people's cause yeah, so yeah, having a bit of a
0: big picture view can really help in planning can't yeah yeah. Alright, so the uh, when are they on again?
2: Uh, So the first one is in Turner at the Renewable Energies Hub um, which is on Moore Street in Turner Uh, that's Monday the 10th of April that's this coming Monday uh, starting at 6.30 and we'll probably go for a couple of hours Um, and as I say we'll be going through community assets and then ideas uh, on the future and then the implementation of those ideas, and then the second event, uh, similar setup, is on the 19th of April at the Tuggeranong Community Centre, which is at 245 Shore Street in Greenway, and again that starts at 6:30.
0: All right, William well, Lilly from Transition Towns, seat change, the food co-op behind the lines. you do anything else (laughs) you slacker i sleep sometimes yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah all right well thank you very much liam good on you thanks scotty thanks for having no worries